couldn't help but remember a story I heard many years ago. It was about a little girl who had this precious plastic necklace. You know, she was about six, seven years old, and she took this plastic necklace everywhere she went. And she'd carry it with her to school every day. She'd wear it in the pool. She'd wear it to bed, wear it to play. No matter what she was doing, she always held on to this plastic necklace on her neck or in her hand. She refused to be departed from it. And one day she was playing in her living room. Her father was sitting in the chair. And her father just said to her, My daughter, do you love me? She said, Yes, Daddy. Do you know that I love you too? Yes, Daddy. Will you give me your necklace? She just froze. Just like started backing out of the room as if her father just became the incarnation of the boogeyman. And just walked out. You know, didn't say a word. And he just kind of left it at that. And a little later on, one day, they were driving to school. My father says to him, my daughter, do you know that I love you? He looks at him like, depends on what you're going to say next, you know. He's already catching on. Will you give me your necklace? She says, I can love. And the daughter got very angry. She said, I can love you and keep my necklace too. Why do I have to divide it? I love both you and I love my necklace. And I want them both. No. And why would you ask me that? Why would you ask me to give you what I love if you love me? And so this became like a common contention between the two. And every once in a while, the father would ask the girl to give him her necklace. But she never did. And one day, the father was sitting in the living room. Little girl walks into the room, you know, head down, face very sad, Tears falling down, her lower lip puckered out, kind of like what the Frasati boys looked like last night when they were arrested by the police. But that's another story. Um, And he walks over to her. She walks over to him, and she lifts up her hand. And she opens it. And there in her hand is that little plastic necklace. And the father, his face just overcame with joy, and excitement and thrill, kind of like what I looked like last night when I heard the Frasati boys got arrested by the police. (laughs) Finally, justice is being served around here. But that's another story. You can talk to them after mass. She hands him the necklace, and he says to her, wait here. And he walks out of the room, and comes back, and he kneels in front of her. And he opens up a little black box before her. And she opens it, and inside is a real diamond necklace. And he said to her, I have been waiting so long to give this to you. But I had to wait until you were willing to give up what is fake before I could give you what is real. I think so much of our life is a battle with just that. Idol worship in our life is anything that we put before God, that we elevate or even put in his place, that we love more than the Lord himself. And I think this is what Christ is speaking to in a sense right before he's leaving his apostles. And he's trying to console them and tell them, I will not leave you orphans. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. 
I am going to prepare a place for you. You know my Father. You know His presence. And He will take care of you. And that's the role of a father. The primary role of the father is to be the provider. And provider comes from the Latin providere. means to look ahead. I am looking ahead of where you are going. And I am going to take care of wherever that's going to be. But you have to be willing to let go of this present moment. Of whatever you're clinging to that seems to be shining in front of you so brightly. If you are going to receive what I want to give to you. And that's where idols come up in our life. The things in front of us in the present moment that we've come to love and cherish. And little by little, perhaps love more than God himself. Kind of like St. Paul's. Let's be honest. Wherever you go this summer, it's not going to be this good, right? Maybe I'm just trying to prepare all of our hearts. Like, it's going to suck. Just because we do things so well around here, right? It's all secondhand after that. But that's the price of glory, right? What can you do? But whatever it is, we tend to cling to the present moment, the, the creatures in front of us, because we're afraid to walk by faith. And perhaps there's a doubt within us that God will actually take care of us, that he'll be there on the other side to give us what we need when we get there. So we want to cling to what is right in front of us in the present moment because we're so afraid of what our life will be like without that thing. It reminded me of a movie. It was fascinating because last year on the same last Sunday before break, I had just recently seen the movie Hereditary, Ari Aster film, and just happens that I just, he came out with another film just recently I saw last week called Bo Was Afraid. And I was like, I gotta complete another homily with an Ari Aster film with the same warning that I'm never saying to watch his movies. I just wanna talk about it. And one interesting thing is I, it's all about idol worship, right? Because Bo Was Afraid, it's about this young man who grew up with an overbearing mother whose father wasn't there in his life. And so his mother almost used him as a surrogate spouse. He became everything to her and she became everything to him. And the reason it's called Bo is Afraid is this is a three hour psychological trip. You know, Joaquin Phoenix, who plays a role, he said, my one warning is don't do mushrooms before you go see this movie because it's going to be really hard for you to follow. Like it is just a very difficult film because you don't know what is real and what is fake. And that's actually how idols work in our life. We see the world through our idols. We see the world through the things that we most love. It colors everything. And it often enslaves us. So because Bo loved his mother so much, and she was the only presence that he had in his life, she did everything to keep him close. And so he was so afraid of the world and everything else and of his own self. And it's all about his journey to try to break out of that mode and actually live his life. And there was a lot of suffering that came with that journey. And I was like, that's exactly what we all have to go through in our own lives when we are trying to break away from the idols that we have come to cling to or to replace in the position of God. An idol is any person, place, thing, or an idea 
that has been placed above God. Right? And in Bob Dylan, that one song, you got to serve somebody. Right? It could be the devil or it could be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. We're, we're all meant to worship something or someone. We're creatures of worship. Just look at the sports channel. Look at Netflix, whatever it is. It's like we're beauty, cosmetics. Like we, we want something to worship, to give all of our attention to. And my favorite uh, definition of worship is attention. You want to know like what my, your personal idol is. What do you think about most? What consumes your thoughts? And what paints the vision of reality for you? Because we all have something. And if it's not the Lord then it's going to be another creature, a place or an idea that has taken the place of God. And that's why I think the, the biggest commandment is the one that was least confessed when we, when we break it, which is the first commandment. The first commandment, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and have no other God before him. There's never a time when we break any of the other nine commandments to follow if we have not already broken the first commandment. Because one way or another, what we've done is we've created an idol that has started to determine the choices we make and the path we want to go down. And it's usually tangible. That's the one thing I found about idols. The reason it's a creature, we want something we can control. How much easier it is when... You know, you, you want to talk to somebody. When you want to feel affirmed, you want to talk about a problem. How much easier is it to call someone on the phone or find someone to talk to rather than go to prayer? Because prayer, you go into faith. Prayer, you have to go into the mystery of the invisible God we cannot see. So it's so much easier to cling to a human being that we can see. And then the most difficult thing is idols always lead to disillusionment. Because we are made for heaven. All all of our desires to be known and seen and loved and understood and cherished and appreciated, to have security and peace and joy, all of that is within us and it's not going anywhere. We can't change our desires. God put them there to remind us that we're made for heaven. But if I'm not looking at heaven... Whatever I'm paying attention to, whatever is most important in my life, I'm going to take all those desires within me and I'm going to project it onto that thing and I'm going to say, you are my God. You are the one who gives me my peace, my joy, my love, my home, my place in this world. And there's only two ways that we go when we worship creatures. And it's either going to be we go from one new idol to another, one new creature to another. That's why the more we worship love, the worse experience of love that we have in this world, the more divorce is prevalent and infidelity because we placed human love above the love of God. So it's like I always need somebody new, something new, a new horizon, a new adventure. And I just keep going until I die. That's what one philosopher said. He said, Human life is seeking one happiness after another until you're dead. He wasn't a very happy person, I don't think. But his counterpart isn't any better, Jean-Paul Sartre, right? His father, existentialism. What he noticed is there is no, there is no answer. 
So his final declaration of life was, life is a useless passion. You have all this longing, all this desire within your heart, and there's no one and nothing that can finally satisfy it. That's why St. Augustine already came to this conclusion. He who looked for love in every place, you made our hearts for you, O O Lord, and they remain restless until they rest in you. So if I'm not looking up at heaven, I'm going to look to the things on this earth to satisfy that restless heart. And I'll either go from one thing to another, to another, to another, where I'll despair of it all and become a nihilist. And an interesting thing I learned about idols is we hate what we most love. Love and hate, there's such a close line. Because the more you love anything, the more expectation you have of it. And when it fails you, which it always fails us, our idols, then we have that same resentment and anger against it. Because it wasn't able to fulfill. I just, I'm rereading Dante's Inferno, or his Divine Comedy, and what, what really hit me about this reading of it. You know, Dante, he's going through all the levels of hell, the levels of purgatory, and the levels of heaven. And his understanding of sin and vice is the most Catholic, purified version I've ever seen. He said, all of sin comes down to this. Loving the wrong thing or loving the right thing in the wrong way. It all comes down to what we love. All of sin, all the vices that are being, you know, punished in hell or purified in purgatory, it's the same thing. The only difference is those in purgatory repented before they died. Those in hell refused to accept that they needed to repent. So they just kept loving the things on earth and now it's their punishment for all eternity. Loving the wrong thing or loving the right thing in the wrong way. It all comes down to what we love. And I just read this book last summer by um, Rob Dreyer, and it's called How Dante Can Save Your Soul. And Rob Dreyer, he's a, he's a famous um, author, right? kind of a political man too, and he has a lot of money, and he has a wife and three kids, and what would seem like a perfect Catholic life. And yet he said that no one knew that he suffered from depression and anxiety his entire life. So much so that he couldn't even speak to his wife. He'd spend days in his bed. And no matter what kind of successes or what, what kind of relationship he had with his wife or his children, he was always empty and disillusioned. And it's because he never fit in with his own family. He always felt rejected by his own father. Like he didn't fit in. And so he spent all his time going to counseling, trying to talk about this, and then changing himself to try to fit into his family or berating his family because he didn't feel like they lived up to his expectations. And one time he was on a trip to France and he came across the Divine Comedy. And as he was reading the book, he realized, I've made an idol of my immediate family. I wanted my father to be God to me. And because he failed to be my God, my affirmer, the one in my life to tell me how good I am and how worthy I am. I've lived the rest of my life resenting him and not appreciating all the gifts around me. So that was the conversion moment. This was his final conclusion in that book. He said, we're all trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. We're all trying to get back to heaven. 
We're longing for the peace and the joy and the love that we had. But I've come to understand that there is only one Eden in this world. And it's within the human heart. And only when we find our heaven with God within our own heart can we truly love others and love ourselves because we can accept their limitations. And we don't try to make them the answer to our deepest longings in life. We're surrounded by plastic necklaces everywhere. We think we own them, but they end up owning us and keeping us from receiving the promise of Christ that comes when we truly surrender to what he wants to give us, the diamonds of grace. So whatever your idol is, the last thing I want to say is, it's not our job to break our idols. It's not our job to to get rid of it and then reorient our hearts. We don't have the power to do that. Don't take Jesus' job from him. All we have to do is be like that little girl and recognize what my plastic necklace is and offer it up to the Father. And that's what we do in every single Mass here. The opening prayer said, may your Paschal mystery continually be accomplished within us. And that's what happens in every Mass that we come to on this very altar where the sacrifice of Christ is being offered right here. And when we can recognize our idols and offer those up on this altar every time we come to receive his body, blood, soul, and divinity, then we will truly recognize God himself coming to save us in that host right now. And we can truly cry out from our hearts, save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. And we will be free.